I think your podcast idea is very cool, the unfinished projects things, because, I mean, we all have them. Right? I think it's kind of an interesting idea. Fortunately, I finished Nick, so we can talk about it in its full, full version. Hello and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished. My name's Emily Anderson and my guest this week is the author Michael Farris Smith. Michael's novels have appeared on Best of the Year lists with Esquire and with NPR, among many others, and he's also been a finalist for the Southern Book Prize and the Gold Dagger Award. His essays have appeared in lots of very eminent places, including the New York Times. Michael's latest novel is called Nick, and it tells the story of Nick Carraway, narrator of The Great Gatsby, before we meet him in F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic work. Listeners in the UK may well have come across Nick already, because Michael's been on front row on Radio 4 to discuss it, and it's also been reviewed in The Guardian and The Times. In the US, it's been reviewed in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The LA Times and elsewhere. Nick is very much finished and very much published, so it may not seem at first to fall into the remit of this podcast, but I wanted to talk to Michael because I wanted to know why and how he approached Nick as an unfinished character, as someone whose personal life and personality we get glimpses of in The Great Gatsby, but who we don't learn that much about. There was also a period in which Nick did remain unpublished because Michael and his publisher had to wait for the copyright to expire on The Great Gatsby before they could let those of us in the reading world get our hands on it. So I wanted to ask Michael about what that wait was like. We talk about the sympathy that Michael feels for Nick's character, about what it's like to go back and read Gatsby at different points in life, and about why Michael tends to be pretty secretive about his work while he's actually in the process of writing. Michael also speaks very generously about the time he spent writing and being rejected for publication before he achieved the success that he now has. That's pretty much it from me, but I do want to let you know that there are just a couple of episodes left in series one of Unfinished Unpublished, and I'm now recruiting for series two. So, if you have an unfinished or unpublished project that you'd like to talk about, email me at unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. So far, I've interviewed writers, artists, musicians, historians, and even gardeners, and I'd love to keep hearing from a variety of people. I was just amazed that no one had done it before. It's such a good idea. Well... Thank you. I, uh, it was a big idea. It was a strange idea, but uh, yeah, it was something I just couldn't keep myself from doing. You know, I think a lot of people go through that with projects. You just get to the point where no matter how crazy it might sound to other people, you know you're going to do it no matter what. So you're saying there that you really felt the need to write Nick, that you felt this impulse to do it. Could you tell me the story about when and how you came up with the idea? Uh, yes, I, I read Nick in two, th- I mean, I read Gatsby, sat down to read Gatsby in the spring of 2014. And it was the third time I had read it. The first time I read it when I was at university, I was probably, probably about 19 or 20 and mm-hmm. didn't get it, didn't care about it completely, just tossed it aside. Okay. Um, uh, read it again when I was around 27 or 28 after I'd left home, been, been gone from my hometown for a while, lived in different parts of the country, but I had spent a few years living abroad 
And I was reading a lot of the Lost Generation writers at that time. I still hadn't started writing, but I guess I was kind of thinking about it a little. I recognized things in the novel then. I recognized the displacement from home, the kind Mm -hmm. of displacement emotionally that Nick seems to be going through, the feelings of kind of isolation and fragility of things. Um, Because I was, my notions about a lot of things were changing at that time. Even so, I kind of set it aside and it was 15 years later in, in 14 when I read it and I really picked it up for no other reason than I was looking for something to read and it was short Yeah. and I couldn't really remember a whole lot about it. And I just picked it up and sat down and it was just a very interesting and kind of emotional reading experience for me. I, I recognized things in Nick. Um, I recognized things in the other characters, just the overall mood and feelings of disillusionment and displacement and I sensed uh, loneliness in it. I sensed uh, depression in it. I sensed uh, just kind of the crumbling nature of things. And when I got toward the end and he he realizes he's turning 30 and he's forgotten it's his birthday, that was the thing that really hit me hard Mm -hmm. um, in the novel. And he goes on to describe a few sentences later as anticipating a decade of loneliness. And in that moment, I, I immediately set the novel aside Because when I was 29, I was coming back home from being abroad. I had decided I wanted to try to write, and I didn't even really know what that meant. Mm. My attitudes about home and country and just relationships and things in general had really changed and evolved over over the recent years. And I I remember thinking, you know, this is, you know, I'm 30, almost 30. My friends, while I've been gone, have gotten married. They've had children. Mm. They've bought houses, they've gotten jobs, like they're living regular lives. And I was, couldn't have been farther away from that. And I just remember thinking, you know, this is going to be either, this is kind of horrifying on one hand, it's also kind of exhilarating at the other. Um, Mm -hmm. But I really just remembered myself at that same time and having some of those same feelings. And I, I finished the novel and just I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I because it's first-person narration and Nick tells us so little about himself, I just couldn't stop wondering about what could have brought him to those types of attitudes and realizations mm-hmm. and the way he was interpreting things. And quite simply, I thought it'd be really interesting if somebody were to write his story. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean, it was as basic a thought as that. And almost before I could finish the thought, I, it, I just thought, well, why don't why don't you do it? Within probably 48 hours, I sat down and, you know, wrote wrote a first scene or just began to yeah. kind of explore what was going on, uh, who he might be. So was it the case then, based on what you just said, it sounds like you were inspired to write that more because you sympathise with Nick's experience, for example, his experience of loneliness, mm-hmm. rather than because you felt that his character needed fleshing out more? Or was it that his character yeah. needed fleshing out as well? No, I think that's very well said. And I, quite honestly, I wish I would have thought to put it that way when <laughs> we started four or five months ago. Um, I did. I just, I, I was drawn to write it because I was very sympathetic mm. to what he what he, he was experiencing as a character. And I think, you know, great novels do that. I think we've all had instances in our lives where a piece of art, whether it be a novel or a poem or a, a song mm. or a painting or something we experience, um, how it really touches us emotionally mm. for whatever reason. Yeah, I had that experience with Nick. I, I was sympathetic to him and I felt what he felt and or what, you know, the way I interpreted 
the things he felt. And it was really that reason why I sat down to do it. I, I never once had the thought, oh, yeah, the world needs, you know, a, a Nick Carraway backstory. To me, that would have been very mechanical and technical. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a marketing idea. I, I wrote it because of um, the sympathy I felt toward him and what he seemed to be going through because I felt like I had experienced a lot of those similar things. So it sounds in a way then, you just said there that there was, I got the sense that there was maybe a gap between your inspiration for the novel and then subsequently how it's been marketed or interpreted. Would you say that that was, that was true? I think maybe, and that's only because things have to be done. That's really two different questions, like the way the thing was marketed and the way it's been interpreted. Like in terms of the way it's marketed, you can't help but market it as a prequel to The Great Gatsby, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you can't escape that, and I knew that. But really, to me, I wasn't writing a prequel so much as I was writing like a really intense character study. And that's how it felt to me. Like I was just really exploring almost like a really fancy book report, you know, (laughs) or some exercise you might do in a writing workshop where you pick a character, you know, out of a story that you're interested in. And, you know, the, the writing instructor says, okay, write a page about, you know, him or her. Yeah. Things you might interpret. I mean, it felt like that to me. I, I, I knew it was going to be called a prequel to The Great Gatsby because so. I guess that's what it is, too. But then in terms of the way it's been interpreted, I also knew that by doing something like this, that reaction would be all over the place, mm. which it has been. It's been completely all over the place. And it's because people feel very strongly about Gatsby. Mm-hmm. People um, feel very strongly about the way they interpret the novel. I don't know. And I felt very strongly about gasping. I felt very strongly yeah. with the way I interpreted the novel, too. So that's essentially, you know, what <laughs> led to it being written. But I, I kind of realized, I realized in the moment that I had the idea for all the extra stuff that would come with this that would make it different than writing any other novel. And, mm. I, you know, I just have kind of just rolled with it. You know, I wrote the novel that I wanted to read, which is all I ever do. And, um, mm. you know, I wouldn't change not one single word of it. And thinking about Nick as a character study then, or a particularly kind of intense character study, did you come up with different options for what he could be like? Or is the narrative that we see in the novel more or less what your conception of it was from the start? Uh, it's more or less what my conception yeah. uh, was from the start. In terms like I felt like I had a grasp of the emotions that were involved. Starting with World War One, the war seemed the logical place for me to start. Because I knew that with the war and with the experience of the war, there would come trauma and there would come um, anxiety and there would come PTSD and all those things, which I felt like he shows characteristics of, um, Mm. even in Gatsby. Because I I think, quite honestly, I think Nick's lying a lot of the time in Gatsby. I think he's extraordinarily unreliable. And I think anyone who has the ability to detach from themselves the way he seems to, it speaks to like some past trauma. Mm. And so, like, those things were there. Like, how, how the concept of how I was going to do it wasn't necessarily there. But I didn't know I would put him in the war and we would just kind of go from there, you know. There, the other part of that was there were breadcrumbs he left us in Gatsby that I did want to adhere to and be faithful mm-hmm. to and try to make those connections. So um, I think I had a pretty good vision for what I, I think I had a vision for what I wanted to do. And I felt like I stayed pretty consistent to that vision all the way through. Mm. I'm going to come back to that question about um, the breadcrumbs um, that 
is left for us by Nick and Gatsby because I think that's completely fascinating. But just before I do that, I wanted to ask you, which I'm sure you've been asked before, but did you feel the pressure of F. Scott Fitzgerald bearing down on you when you were writing this? One of the things that comes up in this podcast is people sometimes say that they struggle to start a project because they feel you know, they worry about it not being good enough. And I feel as though in this case, that might have been a feeling that you had. Oh, yeah. I mean, very early. I think, well, there was an experience of that feeling all the way through in varying degrees. But in the beginning, it was it was heavier and I felt it heavier. Mm. But what began to happen as I began to keep continue along through the novel, those things begin to flake away and fade away. And I just began to engage it like I would any other novel. And I, I kind of came to the conclusion early on that if I'm going to do this, you've got to show up and you've got to bring as much talent, as much dedication, as much grit as you possibly can to this process because it's um, it needs to exist on a very high standard. I mean, I think that for every novel, but clearly this had many other things to to deal with. <laughs> it was either do that or it was shrink back away from it, go hide in the corner and not do it and always wonder what it would have been like. I just wasn't going to let that second thing be the victor in that debate. I mean, I wasn't going to let my fear of what other people might think or whether or not I could do it, I wasn't going to let that fear be the reason that I didn't didn't do it and didn't engage it as enthusiastically as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. So as time went on and I really, that became my mindset all the other stuff began to flake away. And I felt like, too, I was writing a Lost Generation novel and that I was writing an homage to Fitzgerald in some way, too. I mean, I'd like to think he would be very interested. I'm sure he would. And it's interesting that you mentioned The Lost Generation there because I was reading it and I was thinking it was quite Hemingway as well. Was that a conscious thing or did that just creep in? It's not a, It wasn't a conscious thing. Um, Hemingway has been one of my big influences. Yeah. You know, I would say out of you know five writers, he was certainly has been one of my earliest and um, biggest influences. So I think just my style in general is a culmination of those influences, and he's part of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, two, you know, the Farewell, Farewell to Arms is one of my favorite novels, and I mm-hmm. think probably his best novel. It really reminded me of that. Yeah, and I wanted. I, I knew when I was going to put Nick in World War One that. This needs to feel like a world, lost generation World War One novel. Um, yeah. In terms of style, no, I mean, like I wrote in third person for the for two reasons. One, there was no way I was going to write in first person for a page, much less three hundred pages, and try to um, mimic Fitzgerald's voice mm. that he uses in in Gatsby. And so, third person allowed me to just stand back and be myself and tell the story. And uh, certainly, I've been influenced by Hemingway, and I was influenced, you know. Over, in my reading of Farewell to Arms at various times in my life. But, um, you know, it was nothing conscious. It was really just, um, you know, almost trying to live up to that standard of those great war novelists um, Mm -hmm. and poets who, you know, really depicted the war in such an intense and specific way. Mm -hmm. So as we're talking about um, the First World War, you've mentioned that you give Nick a really traumatic experience of the war, partly because of clues that you picked up on in Gatsby and you think that he must have had a really traumatic war. Could you say a little bit about what those clues were? In my initial, like considering doing this, I realized 
Nick was largely a blank slate and had revealed almost nothing about himself to us mm-hmm. in Gatsby. He was turning 30. He had fought in the war. He was from the Midwest. And that's pretty much it. He didn't mm-hmm. say much else about himself or about his family or about uh, any past relationships or, or anything. So, yeah, I mean, those were the things um, I did keep in mind to create the most minuscule biographical details that, that were there yeah. already. Yeah. And then kind of, uh, you know, the war gave me the opportunity to, uh, I was really looking for what can I, what, what is there that you can use to create experiences? Mm-hmm. And the war was certainly there and it was a huge mm. possibility. And then I thought the Midwest also was a possibility when he talks about his very uh, kind of protective upper middle class conservative background i thought the boyhood things um and his childhood stuff that i offered an opportunity as well which i you know did throughout the novel and and kind of creating some things he had experienced at home um Mm -hmm. his kind of his relationship with his father which it's it's presented so briefly in gatsby it felt strained to me Mm. in those early pages how it was just very kind of there didn't seem to be much depth to that relationship and again, that gave me an opportunity to create some things in his childhood and growing up years that uh, could coincide with that. So I was really looking for taking those minuscule things that were there and seeing what worlds that could be developed that would agree with them. Mm-hmm. And when Fitzgerald wrote, Gats- wrote Gatsby, he was depicting more or less his own era. But in your case, you were, of course, writing a historical novel as well as a prequel or a character study or whatever we choose to call it. Yeah. I've got a bit of an interest in the First World War, and I wondered how you found it doing the research for that. Was it difficult to get your imagination into that era, or did it come quite naturally? It wasn't difficult because it was things I was already interested in, like yeah. Paris. I've had you know I've had a relationship and a love affair with, and been greatly impacted by that city okay. um, over the years, and the writers of that lost generation, the expats, and just the whole era with you know, Sylvia Beach and her bookstore and Gertrude Stein and the artists that were around and just everything that was going on during that period has been, had mm-hmm. a big impact on me. So I was already kind of primed and ready to write about Paris again. And World War One, because of my, you know, kind of interest in the lost generation, you know, World War One's always been really interesting to me. Yeah. And so like doing a little homework about that, I tell you what it was though, it was very eye opening because mm-hmm. You know, having gone to school and learned about World War One or studied about World War One, and then having watched, you know, maybe some movies that depict World War One, you kind of have an idea of what it was like. Mm-hmm. But when you start doing the research and you start finding out what it was really like for the people who served in that war and the things they endured and the, the way they had to fight and survive and scratch and claw every day, I mean, it was it was really blew me away just Mm. the amount of trauma that had to be involved for those people who actually made it home. So that was really engaging for me. And I think when, too, when I stumbled across the tunnels, because I wanted Nick to have a little bit different job than the war. And when I I discovered across, I stumbled across, I think it was actually a BBC documentary about um, the tunnelers. I was mesmerized at Mm -hmm. what an incredible piece of World War I that was, this war. Mm beneath the war and like how extraordinary the casualty rate was for people who went in, in there. And, uh, so yeah, it, it wasn't, no, it wasn't like homework. It was, um, it was very much, <laughs> you know, and I've never written a historical novel before, mainly because I don't, 
like homework and I'm not really yeah. interested in homework. And, <laughs> but I was really engaged because I think I was engaged already. It was just a matter of going deeper into some of the things I already knew, perhaps. Mm. It's interesting what you were saying there about making Nick a tunneler because you give him the job of someone who has to listen for enemy noise and he's very good at it. And I wondered if that also fitted into his character as being an observer. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was always looking for little things that I could do that would almost, you know, wink at Gatsby. Yeah. And that was certainly one of those things. I mean, it made perfect sense to me when I began to read about uh, the men who would go down into the tunnels with a stethoscope and a sardine can Mm-hmm. water and just sit there and be extraordinarily quiet because they had to listen for the enemy and they couldn't be detected. I thought, well, of course they could be good at that. I mean, that's yeah. his whole, his whole thing is he, he's the, he's the wallflower. He's the observer, mm-hmm. but to like the, the shift in the connection through that, which I tried to make was going back to creating his boyhood and his childhood mm-hmm. and how quiet his household was and the way his father had a tendency to deal with things, which was not engaging them, but instead distancing himself. Yeah. It was a matter of having all those little nods and winks toward Gatsby whenever there was a possibility. But two, it was more developing him as an, as an entire person from beginning to, you know, from birth to turning 30, um, yeah. would make it all kind of tie together and believable. You mentioned just before that you read Gatsby several times and that, Initially, maybe you didn't get that much out of it. And then the last time you read it, you had this inspiration for your own novel. If you read it again, what do you think would happen? Or have you read it again? And is it a very different experience? Oh, I have read it again. Yeah. Yeah. I had to read it because in 19, when we sat down to do the revisions, when it was getting time to get the book ready to be published because the copyright was finally going to expire, I had to, I wanted to see if I'd done what I thought I had done. Like if things fit like I thought I remembered them fitting or if, uh, you know, time sometimes changes the way you look at things. So I did go back and read it again as we were going through that, as I was going through that final revision. And I was very satisfied, even more than I thought I would be at how the novels related to one another. And even things that uh, Nick says in Gatsby now seem to carry so much more weight for me. Um, and I can see how they can relate to the world I created for him. You know, it, it'll be a novel I sit down and read again sometime, but yeah, I have read it since I kind of got to the final revision of Nick because I wanted to be sure. I wanted to know if I had done it the way I thought I had done it. Plus it's a short novel and I like short novels and I'll pick <laughs> it up again one day, just like I did several years ago. It's a novel that clearly means something to me, and we all have those, you know, and yeah. you read them at different parts of your life, and they mean different things to you. You know, real briefly, I was doing an interview, I don't know, a month ago, and and I just picked it up, and I just read the last three or four pages of Gatsby, um, because mm-hmm. the interviewer had, you know, asked me some things about it, and when I got done, I picked it up and read those last few pages and it just really, they really struck me again. I felt mm-hmm. such loneliness in those last few pages and a, a desperation in Nick. And it just almost really reinforced the novel I've written about him. And you said there that you had to go back and do some revisions and, and check it again because um, you've been waiting for the copyright to expire. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you because this podcast covers projects that 
I kept private for a certain amount of time. And it was quite a long time that you had to wait, wasn't it, before you published? Yeah, the whole it was very interesting. It's been a strange journey, but you know, because of the idea itself, when I sat down to do it, I didn't tell anybody I was doing. I didn't tell my agent or editor or anyone mm-hmm. what I was doing because I didn't want to be told it was impossible and I didn't I didn't want to be warned about it or I didn't want to hear all the noise about it like already. Mm-hmm. Um so I just wrote it very quietly and turned it in. And it was when I turned it in and everybody kind of picked their jaw up off the floor from what I managed to do, um, that they realized, well, we, this can't be published because of the Gatsby copyright. And because I was so focused and holding so closely what I was doing to myself, I didn't even bother to check the copyright. Like I never mm-hmm. once thought about it. I never once looked it up. I just wrote the novel assuming I would turn it in and if people liked it, it would be published, you know. So that was a big surprise for me. And I'm glad, I'm very <laughs> glad it happened that way. You know, your podcast is an unfinished project. I feel like if I would have known it couldn't be published for five more years, I would have probably procrastinated or yeah. set it aside or mm-hmm. would have had my, the consistency with which I was working on it interrupted because I would have just gotten maybe lazy knowing, well, there's mm-hmm. no sense in rushing this. So I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't know. But yeah, then we had to sit there where everybody just agreed to button their lip and let's be real quiet and let's sit here for five years and then it'll finally be published, which it was a gut punch at the time. But when I went back in 19 and early 20 to go through the final like kind of edits, I was happy the way it, t- it came out that way because I kept writing, you know, I published three other novels during that time. And what I saw was, you know, I was very proud of the novel when I turned it in, but I saw that I had gotten better as a writer over that time period. I saw that my style had evolved and matured. So I was a bit relieved because I had the opportunity then to make Nick a better novel simply because I felt like I was a better writer. So Nick is a better novel now than it would have been if it would have been published in 16 or 17 or whenever. That's really interesting from my perspective because I'm very fascinated by the value that can be added by keeping things private or doing things private for a certain amount of time. Um, So that's really fascinating. I think there's quite a bit of value in that. And it's something I've always tried to adhere to, not just with Nick, but with Mm. whenever I'm working on anything, I just don't like to talk about it really to anybody. And I don't like to sing about it on social media or wherever. I just kind of like to keep my head down and work on it and, and then there always comes a time to mention what you're doing, but uh, I like I like the silence of it that occurs when you're working on something. So is it generally the case then that you only share what you're working on when you're certain that you've finished it? Yeah, it's generally been that way. Like um, Even when I'm writing a novel, I don't really tell my agent or editor anything about it. Um, okay. Kind of been the nature of just how I've worked. I, because... I just don't like being screwed. I don't like having my head messed with or screwed okay. with. You know, I don't like, it, it, I mean, it's inevitable. If you give anybody five pages or 50 pages or 75 pages to look at, they're going to have some comment that's going to mess with you. Like hmm. it'll either be, I mean, it'll be so positive to where you might not tr- even trust it. Or they may ask a question or two that may just throw you off the tracks or throw you off the rails a little bit. And I just, I prefer, and the way I've done things is I write the novel, 
until I'm, and I write it until I'm, I'm very happy with it and feel very confident in it. Mm -hmm. And then I'll send it to my agent and she'll ask me, are you working on anything? And I'll say, yeah. <laughs> and she goes, well, okay, we'll send it. How far are you? I'm like, I'm doing fine. Okay. And those are kind of my token answers. And uh, as long as she knows that I'm working, it's fine. She's learned not to bother me too much about it. But I, it just goes back to this notion of I have a vision for what I'm trying to do. And I don't want anybody else in my head messing with it. So one of the things I was actually wanting to ask you was that some people find it difficult to know when to stop tinkering with writing or any other artistic endeavor. How do you tell when your projects are finished and they're ready to share? That's a good question. I think it, I think what I've learned over the years is that you've just got to uh, you got to begin to trust yourself. You know, mm. you've got to find that moment where you realize I've given this all I can give it, and running the the cloth across it and shining it up point zero 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 five percent isn't going to make a difference at this point. It's either yeah. it's either what you think it is or it isn't, and I think you just got to find and finding that confidence and trust in in your own work and in your own judgment, I think is it is very important. The hardest person to bullshit is yourself. You know, you're not going to pull anything over on yourself. Like, you know, if it's, and, and I think it's fine to ask for help in that instance. I think that's where your agent or your editor or your, you know, your reading buddy, that's, uh, that's where they come in. Mm. But I think also finding that ability to, to trust yourself and what you're doing and your idea for the project, can come in very handy to where you just get to the point to where this is it. I've given it everything I can get, give it. I'm, I'm very proud of it. And whatever comes next is going to come next. Because the, the other thing too, is that you're going to revise it. Nobody turns in a perfect novel. You know, mm. you're still going to have to revise it. You're still going to have to have a conversation about it. Your editor is going to have some things to think about. Even in the best novels, there's a little work that has to be done. Mm. I think it's honestly, I think a lot of it is just letting go, you know, mm. just taking some deep breaths and just letting go and going down that road is stepping as high as you possibly can. And just continuing to think then about your writing process and perhaps also that ability to trust yourself that you mentioned. In the foreword to Nick, you say that you spent a long time writing and being rejected. Could you tell me how you managed to persevere through that period? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I was, I'm just like every other writer who, you know, started, you go through this apprentice phase and nobody knows how long it's going to last. You just keep trying to get, get better and uh, you keep getting rejected and then you get better and you still keep getting rejected <laughs> and then you realize you're good enough and you still keep getting rejected. <laughs> and it's just the way it is, man. I don't, it's, it's tough. And the thing that always kept me motivated and kept me persevering, kind of uh, kept my belief that it'll happen if I, if I just stay with it, was that I've always been a fan of reading author interviews. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like to get behind the curtain. Always have and still do. And, you know, I read over and over in, in writers um, who I admired how much rejection they faced and how many yeah. years, how, how long it took. And, the years of nothing happening, and then all of a sudden, you know, they found that one person who, who gave them a shot or who believed in their work. And, you know, I mean, the writers that I've loved and admired, I'm, I'm as impressed upon and as influenced by the things they had to say about 
the nature of it all and of the perseverance and of the work ethic than by anything they've yeah. put into a novel easily. I think that was the most important. And I think that's why I don't have a problem, you know, talking about that or um, in interviews or, you know, if I'm in front of a crowd or whatever, because there's people out there who need to hear it, you know, from me, like I needed to hear it from other people. Mm. I think that's really valuable. And I think a lot of people will take inspiration from that. And um, I was wondering if you are still able to value this may be a difficult question to ask, but if you had something that wasn't published, would you still value that as much as if it had been published? Oh, yeah, I think you have to value it. I mean, all the yeah. stuff that I wrote that didn't get published, it helped me get to, to where I could find my voice to where I could be. Yeah. I don't think there are any wasted words. And, I, you know, if I were to sit down and write something this afternoon, even if I just, you know, threw it in the trash can when I was done, it was, it was helpful, you know. Yeah. It's it, there was something working in me while I was doing it, some emotion. There was language flowing through my brain and out of my fingertips and on the page and my imagination mm-hmm. was engaged. And the words that don't get published may even be more important than the words mm-hmm. that do get published because that's when you're you're really working and you're getting better. When you watch a, a basketball game or a, a, you know, a, a football match, you're seeing the game. You're not seeing the hours and hours and hours yeah. and hours and hours those athletes put in to where they could get to the point to where they could perform like they do. Mm. And I think art is very much the same way. We work and we, a lot of hours, no matter what the medium to get to the point where you can show out with what you've become, you know, it's it's all those other things that get you to where you are, the writer that you finally are. I think it all has value. And do you have any writing projects that you have abandoned? Oh yeah, we all have. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it's, it's fortunately and it's been a while but I think we all have one and a half or two novels in, in the landfill mm. somewhere you know I think I actually have an old friend from high school who swears right after I started trying to write that I had given him something to read and it was maybe like a 180 page novel or what I thought was a novel and uh, he still got it in his closet somewhere <laughs> I threatened him that that We'll never see the light of day <laughs> anywhere. But but yeah, we've all got, we all have um, failed experiments. I think that's part of it. Mm. And would you ever go back to any of them and pick them up again? Or are they no, done and dusted? No, no, no. They're just, they were practice. Okay. They were practice. <laughs> would you ever write a sequel to Gatsby or to Nick? Or are you finished with no, that character as well? God, no. Hell no. <laughs> I'm so done. Uh, you know, it was a very emotional journey for me. I had very specific reasons to being drawn to doing that. Mm. Very personal reasons. And it exhausted me. Okay. Um, just like every novel exhausts me. But, you know, I, I doubt that I, I don't anticipate ever having another experience in reading another novel or engaging with another character like that again. I think mm. it uh, was kind of a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And I'm just going to mm. leave it there. Yeah. So do you have, you said then that you find finishing a novel pretty exhausting. Do you have to take quite big breaks between writing projects? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, it's not something I necessarily consciously say, okay, I'm not going to do anything for, you know, four weeks or six weeks or months or whatever, but it is, it's an emotional drain. And if I wasn't emotionally exhausted after it, then I would think something was wrong. 
Yeah. Like, it would probably be a clue to me that that's not the novel I was supposed to be writing. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, I think Walker Percy, the great uh, Southern American writer, he used to refer to that time after he finished a project as uh, the re-entry period, where it just took him <laughs> a little while to just kind of get his thoughts settled and kind of get his emotions, mm-hmm. let them kind of come back to even levels and just kind of, you have to kind of ease back into the world. And I do that too. I'm not the kind of writer who thinks as soon as I finish something, I have to turn around and find something else to write about. And I find, yeah. and it's been my experience too, that I never find those things if I'm looking for them. It takes me unwinding and just kind of being in the world and watching and observing before one of the, something that strikes me that I feel like I want to uh, engage with. So just finally then, maybe, what does your re-entry period look like? What do you do to relax? I um, sit on my back porch and I drink and I uh, (laughs) smoke cigars and um, I hang out with my children and my wife. And, you know, I I always uh, think taking a nice long run or a nice long walk is a good way to get my mind right, too. I try to, despite Mm -hmm. the drinking and the cigar smoking, I also... (laughs) I do try to exercise and keep myself in motion because mo- I think motion is good in any number of ways. 